You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Genesis 44, we will read through the whole chapter if you need to sit down at any time. Feel more than welcome to do so. Genesis 44. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. Verse 7, they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. Verse 12, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, Joseph, verse 17, said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah, verse uh, verse 18, went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left over of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Verse 23, then you said to your servants, 
Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Verse 24, when we went back to your, to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen his face since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Verse 32, for your servant became a pledge of his safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Verse 33, now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Oh, beloved, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and as we have read, we come to chapter 44 in this great history, this great history of salvation. Since chapter 41, we have been watching the Lord, Yahweh, address two famines in the land. Of course, the first famine is the food famine that stretched beyond Egypt's borders and into the entire world. And God had granted Joseph wisdom on how to deal with that famine. And Egypt alone was prepared to deal with the famine that hit the entire world. The second famine is the moral famine. The moral famine which ravaged the hearts of Joseph's brothers who only 20 years earlier from this moment had sold their brother Joseph into slavery because they were overcome by jealousy and envy at the favoritism that Jacob, their father, had shown Joseph. As you know, Joseph was the second to the last son born to Jacob. And he was the oldest of two boys born to Rachel, who was Jacob's beloved wife. Benjamin was the youngest of the two brothers, and he is the only full-blooded brother of Joseph. These two boys were exceptionally special to Jacob. Some 20 years earlier, as you know, Joseph was sold into Egyptian slavery and he was expected to be dead. They thought that was the end of their brother. But Joseph did not die. 
Instead, God, through some remarkable providence, catapulted Joseph into power in Egypt where he became the second in power only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph's brothers have no idea to this point in the story. They have no idea that Joseph is still alive and they have no idea that this is the man they have been interacting with in Egypt as they have gone now twice to purchase food for their family. Only God knows and the reader and Joseph. The brothers are completely in the dark to the providence that is taking shape before their eyes. But as I said, Joseph knows. Joseph knows and he has been testing his brothers to see what kind of men they have become after their betrayal of him 20 years prior. And what he is finding out again and again is that his brothers are full of godly fear and godly sorrow. He's starting to hear from his brothers remorse for what they had done to him all those years ago. And so as God addresses the moral famine in the hearts of the brothers, we can see God also working in the heart of Joseph. We said this last week, God always works on both ends. He is replacing this desire for self-preservation in the brothers with godly fear and godly sorrow. And in Joseph, he is replacing bitterness and pain with mercy and compassion. Chapter 43 ended on a high note. It was a beautiful feast. They had feasted and drank into the night. Joseph tested his brothers one last time on that evening to see if there still lurks in the hearts of their brother's jealousy as he gave Benjamin five times more food than the other brothers in the middle of a famine. But no such evidence of envy was found. The brothers seemed to be content with their own portions. And this was further or more evidence that God was addressing the moral famine in the hearts of these brothers. And that brings us to chapter 44. And Joseph has one last, one final test in mind before he is going to disclose himself to his brothers. And this test is a most brilliant one. Joseph is going to skillfully recreate the same scenario that surrounded his own betrayal 20 years ago. And he will use Benjamin, the new favorite son, the youngest of the brothers. He will use Benjamin as bait. And the question that Joseph wants to answer is this. Will the brothers have compassion on Benjamin? Will they have compassion on Benjamin as he is sold into Egyptian slavery as Joseph was sold into Egyptian slavery 20 years ago? Will they try to rescue him? Will they come after him? Or will they revert back to the same disgraceful behavior when they sold Joseph into slavery? In Joseph's mind, this is the greatest test to see if his brothers have indeed repented 
of their sin and are indeed changed men. And so our first scene comes in chapter 44. I've entitled Planted Evidence. Our first scene is entitled Planted Evidence. The brothers wake up the next morning after a great feast in the governor's house. Perhaps some of them a little hungover. Their hearts are filled with joy as they feasted in the middle of a famine. They ate until they were filled. Not only that, but they wake up the next morning and they have Benjamin with them, the youngest, just like they promised their father. Not only do they have Benjamin, but they have Simeon, the one who was held as a ransom. Not only that, but their donkeys are loaded down with food for their families. This was a successful trip on all accounts. And the ride home must have been a joyful one. But little did they know that one more test of their character was about to happen. Look at verse 1 again. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house... And he said, fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver one, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, silver, of course, in any economy, but especially in the ancient East, silver had uh, value to anyone who would possess it. And so those unfamiliar with this story may think nothing of the fact that Joseph is saying, put this silver cup in the sack of Benjamin's. But those who know the story well are reminded of the special significance of silver in this narrative. Again, 20 years prior to this moment, it was Joseph's brothers who sold Joseph into Egyptian slavery for, someone want to let him in. <laughs> it was Joseph's brothers who sold Joseph into Egyptian slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Joseph was there when he saw and heard the money sacks of the Ishmaelite traders open up and dump out the silver into the hands of his brothers. Joseph was there as he saw the price of his life given. And so Joseph is skillfully recreating his own betrayal using the other favorite son, Benjamin, in order to test the character of his brothers. After the evidence is planted in Benjamin Sachs and the brother are on their way home, Joseph instructs his officers to track down the brothers. He uses military terms. He gives them a military command, up, go, track them down and overtake them. He wants this to be a harsh takeover. He wants them to feel the pangs of guilt. And he wants them to accuse them of stealing the vizier of Egypt's silver cup. He tells his servant in verse 4, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, 
Why have you repaid evil for good? Verse 5, is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now, divination, as we've covered before in our Genesis series, is the practice of magic or soothsaying or sorcery. It is doubtful that Joseph was actually practicing magic or sorcery in Egypt because we have seen him time and time again remain faithful to Yahweh, even when he was in captivity, when he was in prison, and we've seen him remain faithful to Yahweh even in his rise in Egypt. More likely, instead, by describing this cup as a source of divination, more likely Joseph is heightening the severity of the crime while at the same time still disguising his identity. My goodness, I don't know what, know what that was. <laughs> Joseph is heightening the severity of the accusation and at the same time, he is disguising his own identity. In other words, as I said, he wants the brothers to feel the weight of this accusation. He wants them to fear death. He wants to test whether or not they will abandon Benjamin to save their own skin. That's the point. Will they abandon Benjamin to save themselves? So that's our first scene. Evidence is planted for the sake of testing. Next, the brothers are arrested and taken into captivity. This is scene two. Joseph's officers catch up with the brothers and completely ruin their celebration journey back to Canaan. The officers level the accusation as they were told and the brothers are undone at the accusation. Look at verse seven. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? In other words, these brothers are saying, we've already shown you our integrity. What sort of thieves would have extra money in their bags and then return that extra money? What sort of thieves would we be if we were to, to act in such a way? No, no, no. We've already shown you that we have good character. Why would we steal something from the, our Lord's house? Confident then of their innocence, each man gladly lowers their bags to the ground and they open their bags for the officers to see. Yeah, search, go for it. We have nothing, nothing to hide. Verse 12, and he, that is a servant of, of Joseph, searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, each one growing more confident as their bag was found empty until they get to Benjamin. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. The planted evidence and the accusation was successful. 
An arrest is made and the brothers are brought into custody. Joseph's plan is working perfectly. The brothers tear their clothes. You notice that in verse 13. They tear their clothes as a desperate sign of lament and guilt. Another bit of irony hits the reader as others have pointed out when the brothers 20 years previous had sold Joseph into slavery. Remember, it was not their clothes that they were tearing, but it was Joseph's coat that they tore into pieces and drenched in goat's blood to fake his death and to trick their father. But now in this scene, as a sign of true lament and solidarity, they tear their own clothes. Hatred and cover-up is being replaced by personal responsibility. How could this happen? They had come so far. They had that great feast. It was a great morning. They had Benjamin and Simeon and food and money. But now Benjamin is going to die and perhaps none of them would return home. So planted evidence leads to an arrest and custody. Our final scene is by far the most important in this text comes as Judah pleads for his brother and offers himself as a substitute. They arrive back in Egypt to find Joseph still at home. And they fall before him to the ground. All 11 brothers before Joseph. And this time, Joseph's dream back in chapter 37 is fully realized. All of his brothers are bowing before him. Still cloaking his identity, Joseph grills them one last time. Look at verse 15. Joseph says to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Joseph is saying, in other words, don't you know who I am in this land? I am like a god in Egypt. I am like one who practices divination. How could you steal my cup? And again, he's doing his best to keep himself together so as to heighten the fear in his brothers as much as possible. He's trying to provoke them to abandon Benjamin like they abandoned him 20 years previous. He's doing everything he can to provoke jealousy and and anger and self-preservation. But the brothers will not abandon Benjamin. Why? Because these are changed men. The climax of the story is Judah's impassioned plea for his brother. 
Notice first in his plea, Judah does not try to claim innocence at all. He doesn't even try to attempt to clear his name or his brother's names. Look at verse 16. Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how could we clear ourselves? Notice what he says. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah is well aware that there is no way he is going to be able to prove his innocence before the vizier, who is his brother. (laughs) What's more is that all of the brothers, listen, all of the brothers are already convinced that they're guilty before God. Not on the account of the stealing of the cup, but they've already been impaled with guilt because of the betrayal of Joseph. Remember in the last chapter, the chapter before, they already said all of these trials and sufferings are coming upon us because of what we have done to Joseph. So in Judah's mind, it doesn't matter if they are innocent of stealing the silver cup. They are already guilty for what they've done to Joseph. Oh, beloved, this is a huge, important application in the life of a Christian. As you see evil in the world, evil that you may not have done, we must not become those people that say, how could you do such a thing when we know we are guilty of other things before God? So regardless of what happened with the cup, they are already impaled with guilt and sorrow. So then Judah's plea is not for justice, but for mercy. Joseph digs in again. But he said in verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. Again, look, at he's trying to single out Benjamin. He's recreating the same scenario where he was betrayed. But as for you, notice what he says. As for you all, it's fine. You're fine. Go in peace to your father. Go in shalom to your father. You're off the hook. Go. Take the money, take the food. I've got Benjamin, he's guilty, you're not. Go. Leave the favorite child enslaved in Egypt. Save yourselves. Go in peace to your father. But this time, They don't go for that temptation. They would not abandon their brother. Instead, Judah, a changed man, 
speaks with a confidence that can only come from a man who fears God more than anything else. Judah stands to his feet to address the Egyptian governor in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah goes on to share with Joseph the special place that Benjamin has in the heart of his father. He goes on and on about how much this would crush his father not to receive home his favorite, his youngest son, Benjamin. His gray hairs would go down to Sheol. They would go down to hell, to the grave. This would kill our father not to see his favorite son. It's interesting. It was Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph that first kindled their hearts against Joseph. But now, as others have remarked, now it's the same favoritism that is cited as the grounds for mercy. Look at verse 30 again. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. You can't take Benjamin. Our dad will die. You can take any one of us and our dad will be okay. We're not his favorite. But you can't take Benjamin. Favoritism, the favoritism that once aggravated their jealousy against Joseph is now the grounds for their appeal for mercy. Do you see these men are changing? Twenty years ago, they would have said to each other, take Benjamin. (laughs) He and the dreamer can have a nice life together as slaves in Egypt. But now the favoritism of Jacob is no longer enslaving their passions. Why? How? What is changing in them? Is it because Jacob became a good father and showed his love equally to all of his children? No. Because not only have they experienced godly guilt from the Lord, but they have also experienced God's divine affection. The brothers have been released from envy and jealousy not because Jacob changed his ways, their father. 
And suddenly Jacob became equitable in his love for his children. No, Judah and his brothers no longer need the undivided attention of their father because they have now found that they have the undivided affection from their heavenly father. How do you become released from envy and jealousy, not only among siblings, but also coworkers and friends and people you don't know? It's not by banking on them to change. You can hope for them to change, but that is not what's happening in the brothers. Their perspective changed. They felt God's affection upon them and suddenly their earthly father's affection held less weight. Like Mother's Day, Father's Day is a mixed bag. Some of you, I praise God, you come in here and you had a godly example. You had a godly example, imperfect, but a godly example of a father who follows Jesus. Some of you this year have lost grandfathers, have lost fathers. Some of you, maybe like me, your father wasn't there and you were, you were trying to find affection from so many other fathers. My goodness, may God's people this morning, may we realize, may we feel, not just know, feel, experience divine affection from our Heavenly Father. Watch that melt away all kinds of unhealthy attachments in life. Do you see the transformation in the brothers? Do you see it? And other rights, the brothers have repented of their sin against Joseph. They had forgiven the unfair favoritism of their father. And they so loved their father still, even though their father didn't change. They so loved their father and his favorite son that they would not forsake Benjamin, though the cost was immense. In other words, these brothers are no longer bent towards self-preservation. They're not just looking out for number one now. Instead, the mercy they have received from the Lord is now flowing out of them. And this is seen most clearly as we close. Finally, in his final plea before the Egyptian magistrate, Judah offers himself in the place of Benjamin. Look at verse 32 to the end. For your servant became a pledge of safety. Judah is speaking to Joseph, though he doesn't know it's Joseph. Your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And then suddenly this comes to the heart and mind of Judah. Now, therefore, please let your servant 
remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his father with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Beloved, it was this act of sacrificial love that penetrated the last defenses in Joseph. If you flip over just to the very next chapter, the very first verse of chapter 45 details Joseph becoming undone. He can't handle it. His heart is melted by this display of sacrificial love. And then he goes on to disclose himself to his brothers. Sacrificial love overcame his last defenses. And the grace and the mercy that came to Judah is now the grace and mercy that is running through Judah. My life for the boys. Take me instead of him. My father will be fine without me. He won't be fine without Benjamin. What a transformation in Judah and the brothers. From a genocidal betrayers to being willing to lay down one's life for another. And not just another, another favorite child. Beloved, this theme of substitution is all over Genesis. In fact, it's all over the entire Bible, this theme of substitution. All the way back in chapter 3 of Genesis, God kills an animal to clothe Adam and Eve instead of executing judgment on them. That's, that's how the Bible opens up, with substitution. God then provides, remember in chapter 22, a ram that's caught in the thicket right before Abraham is going to plunge his knife into his son. He provides a substitute, a ram instead of Isaac. And here Judah is offering his life for Benjamin. Let the boy go, take me. Substitution. The entire sacrificial system throughout Israel's history is built on the idea of substitution. This life in the place of that life. And of course, later in redemptive history, we would come to find that Judah's move to substitute himself for Benjamin would become the great foreshadowing of another who would descend from the tribe of Judah and offer himself as a substitute. But of all the examples of substitution in the Bible, all of them would pale in comparison to this one. There is a moment in the Gospels, you'll remember this, when Pontius Pilate is standing before a foaming crowd in Jerusalem. And it's one of the saddest moments in all of history. 
And he says, you Jews have a custom that once a year you release a prisoner. That's what you Jews do. I'm, I'm here to do that for you. I've got two prisoners that I want to bring before you. The first one is Barabbas. Barabbas is a known murderer. He is a thief. He is, he is seething in unrepentance. I've got this one I can release to you, or I've got this Jesus from Nazareth who, who, who I find no fault in. Hoping that the crowd would pick Jesus and release Pontius Pilate of this difficult task of punishing this man who he finds no guilt in. To his surprise, the crowd responds, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Substitution. Barabbas represents all of fallen humanity. It represents you and me. In Christ, the lion from the tribe of Judah was taking on God's angry wrath against sin in our place. Beloved, this is where transformation happens by beholding the great substitution. Like Joseph's heart that melted because of Judah's offer of sacrifice, our hearts melt and burn within us as we learn again and again and again of Christ in the place of Barabbas, Christ in the place of Barabbas, Christ in the place of you and me. On that road to Emmaus, after these downcast disciples hear of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation and they sit down with their substitute, Jesus Christ, the risen lamb. As they're recalling that moment, they say, did not our hearts burn within us? This is where transformation happens. Not in trying to morally do the Christian thing, you might do some good things, and that's good. I mean, that's good. Do good things. Do the next good thing. But apart from substitution, we've said this many times, it's like rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It looks prettier going down. You need a new ship. You don't need new chairs. You need a new ship. You need a new life. You need Christ for you. This is what Judah pictures for all of humanity. That there is coming one that would substitute his own. But unlike Judah, he, is, he doesn't have any priors, Jesus. There's no stain of sin. He was perfect. And that's why Paul would say, for our sake, he made him Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is where transformation happens. May the grace and mercy that comes to us and transform us, may that grace and mercy flow through us toward others, especially those who do not deserve it. Amen? Let's go before the Lord in prayer.
Father, would you grant change in all of us as we behold Christ in the place of sinners? You won't do it through preaching. You won't do it through conjuring emotions. You won't do it through any other means but your divine granting. So we pray your spirit would move, would blow through the hearts of the men and women here, that our hearts would burn within us as we behold the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. All God's people said.